there's a phrase in one of the songs that we've been singing a good bit lately that has just gripped me coming into this Easter Sunday, and, and it's that phrase that death could not hold him. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I want us to look at the scripture. I hope you get, have your Bible with you, and if you don't have a, a Bible of your own, then just scoot over real close to that new best friend that you're going to sit next to and look on with them this morning. We'll have it up on the screen, but um, follow along with me. If, go, go please to um, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke chapter 23. To set the stage, to set the tone. Sometimes we come straight into these Easter Sundays and we can, we can forget the setting which um, comes before, the setting that befalls us. And, and uh, we need some of that background, I believe, this morning. So let, let me read, starting in verse 33 of Luke chapter 23. And when they came to the place called the Skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the left, one on the right, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And the soldiers cast lots, rolled dice, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription above him. This was intended not only to mock Jesus, but to mock the Jewish nation. The Roman procurator, the Roman official, Pilate, had this sign named above this one being crucified. This is the king of the Jews. You could put a question mark there. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hang there, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, about 12 o'clock noon, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the multitudes who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, they began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin council, that group known as the rulers of the Jews, the ones who had perpetrated the plot against Jesus and leveraged Pilate saying, you're no friend of Caesar unless you put this man to death. He's making himself out to be a king. It was this council, the Sanhedrin, perpetrated the plot against Jesus. However, however, Joseph, a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down, took it down off of the cross and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was the preparation day, the day before the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed after and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and perfumes to put on the body of Jesus, and on the Sabbath day they rested according to the commandments. So Jesus was taken from the cross, he was put in the tomb late Friday afternoon. The women followed the procession, the small carrying the body of Jesus to the tomb. They saw where he was put, realizing that the Sabbath day was to be a day of rest. They, they were not going to to treat his body on the Sabbath, so they, they returned to gather their preparation, make their preparation for the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, which would be Sunday. They returned and prepared spices and perfumes. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, the next morning, Sunday morning, at early dawn, they, the women, came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you, they said. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise again and they remembered the words 
and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And now there were, they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. And these words appeared to them, to the apostles, as nonsense, and they wouldn't believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, stooping down and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and went away to his home, marveling at that which had happened. That's the stage. That's the setting. That's the context wherein we ask the question, why could the grave not hold? What caused death to lose its power over the physical body of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) And from there, I want you to turn to the left in your Bible, all the way back over to the book of Isaiah, 750 years or so prior to the life of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, prior to the ministry of Jesus, these words are spoken about him. Verse 2, Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. But surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, by his stripes, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. John the Baptist would say of Jesus as he was walking toward him, As John was baptizing in the Jordan River, he cried out for all to hear as Jesus approached. Behold, the Lamb of God who's been given to take away the sins of the world. The correlation between Isaiah 53 700 years at least before Jesus was ever born, saying to all who would listen, there is one coming sent from God 
blessed by God. And he will be the one upon whom God lays the sins of the world for the purpose of his being a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, to take the place of humanity as he suffers and as he dies. A long-standing theme. It's not just New Testament. It's Old Testament too. There's somebody coming that the world desperately needs, that every sinner needs, that every Every child born of a woman is going to need one day. The world is going to need a Savior, not just a political Savior, not just an academic Savior, not just a cultural Savior, but a Savior to save them from their sins. You find also that amazing verse that's so clear and how it expresses what Jesus did. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, where it says, He himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sins and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. And then Romans chapter 6 Verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the first line is powerfully inescapable in its focus, in its declaration. For the wages of sin is death. The wage that sin pays is death. It is a law in the scripture spoken of as the law of sin and death. It's an inescapable law. It's an inviolable law. It is applied to every living human. The wages of sin is death. Now watch. I'm going to do that one more time in case you missed it. Which law is that an expression of? The law of gravity. Now, if you happen to have a southern draw, does that allow you to escape the law of gravity? If, if, you, if you have more money than you could ever spend in a hundred lifetimes, would that allow you to escape the properties of the law of gravity? It wouldn't matter your age. It wouldn't matter your background. It wouldn't matter your family name. It wouldn't matter what religious tradition you came from. It wouldn't matter your culture. It wouldn't matter your gender. The properties of the law of gravity apply equally to all. Can I get a witness? It is a law of gravity. In the scripture, 
There is an explicit law that we're identifying here that is called the law of sin and death. It is a law in the sense of the law of gravity that it applies equally to all. Where there is sin, sooner or later, something is going to die. Now, what is sin? Sin would be that which doesn't meet the standards that God sets as being right and as being good and being true. There can be implications of sin on, a, on other levels and other dimensions, but Jesus did not come to die for anything other than the sins, the messes, the junk, the trouble, the stuff that we can get ourselves into because sometimes there's just a part of us that wants to say to hell with you, God. I'm going to do it my way, in my time, and I don't care what you think. I'm my own self-made man. I'm my own woman. I'm going to make my own rules. I'm going to set my own schedule. I'm going to do what is right in my eyes, and I don't care about the rest. Well, some of us are loud like that. Some of us had in order to peep, but that's how we live. The Scripture said, Jesus said, that, that there would be a day coming when his spirit would be poured out. We're fast forwarding to following even Easter Sunday and the day of Pentecost and the pouring out. But Jesus, here's what he said. He said, the spirit of God will be poured out to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In other words, it will be a function. And this is the good news. When you're getting pierced with a sense of, I just, I did something wrong. I, I, I was wrong. You know where you're going to know that? Is that the Spirit of God who loves you pointed that out. That, that, it, is, that it, is the, it is the Spirit of God who will convict the world of sin and righteousness. They say, convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me. Convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to the Father and the righteous standard of my life will not be visible anymore. But he, by his, the Spirit, will be the standard. He will cause there to be an invisible knowing, just an invisible sensing. This is right. This is wrong. Sin is that which displeases God. And it is all of our problem. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, not the Pope, not the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, not your saintly aunt. You know. None righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that can sound... Very disheartening, and, and in a real sense, it is. But 
But you take that and you, you go back and you ask the question, so how did death lose its grip on the body of Jesus? The wages of sin is death. He took in his body our sins. We hadn't committed them yet because we hadn't been born yet, but he knew us. He knew what he was getting. He knew we were coming down the pike. And because he was God, he looked and read your mail, read my mail, before I ever said a word or did a deed or took a step. And he knew. That David Walker, when he showed up, he's going to need a Savior. He's going to need somebody to take care of the sin that he will choose to do, the violations that he will premeditatedly in some ways just decide to do. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. You put your name in that. Somebody getting beaten up today and discouraged and feel like you're just lower than dirt and that there's no hope. And no... Look to Jesus. Just look at him. And you can say this about him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of, and you put your name in there. Okay. But what did he have to go through? for that to be able to be said about him. The wages of sin is death. We, we think of the cross as we should on Good Friday. And we sing our lungs out, clap our hands, and we're, we're just celebrating come Easter Sunday. But folks, what was happening? What's happening for you? What was Jesus doing for you in the time between he breathed his last and that Easter Sunday morning when he was raised to life again? Here's what he was doing. He was with his life given to death, paying your debt. You know, and I, I, can, I can think some of the ones who clap the loudest and shout the most and something like that are the ones who, you know, may have a phone book thick book <laughs> of sins. So some, of the, some of the rest of us maybe who, who weren't maybe raised in some of those same kind of places and we were wonderfully exposed to, to things that were right and good and brought up in church and so forth. Sometimes it's, it's kind of hard for us to realize too that, that all our righteousness is as filthy right. That there's none righteous. It, it doesn't matter if you, if you were born into the nursery at Alamo City or you were born under a bridge in inner city San Antonio. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And every living human needs a Savior. And so in order for Jesus to save, here's, here's the point. Here is the point. 
in order for Jesus to save you, in order for him to be qualified to rescue you, in order for him to be conferred with the ability to raise you from your junk into a new life, he had to die for you. He had to die for you. Why, why that long in the grave? So that there would be no doubt that he didn't just collapse. He didn't just, just faint. He, he didn't just pass out. He, he was dead. Why was he dead? My sin killed him. Your sin killed him. Folks say, oh, I want the joy of the Lord. I want the victory of the Lord. Then just grab a hold of with your whole heart what he did for you. Don't try to make it polite. Don't try to make it beautiful. Don't try to make it sweet. You needed, according to the scripture, somebody to die in your place. Or you or I would have to die on our own for the sins we've committed. The wages of sin is this. So he took in his body our sins when he went to that cross. And here's what happened when he went there. The law, the law of sin and death was not only operational, but the law of sin and death was fulfilled. The rules weren't changed. He met the full bore of the standards of the law of sin and death. The violations of the law resulted in sin. The human race's sin, yours, mine. And the only way the law would be satisfied is for Jesus Christ to serve the sentence required by the law. Or you would, or I would. So the law was followed. Punishment was served. But debt was paid. He wasn't saying anything. He wasn't healing anybody. He wasn't prophesying anything He was just as he died, as he laid there dead. He was satisfying the law against you. He was paying the debt that you and I would owe. Tell you something else. He also robbed Satan. His death robbed Satan. Why did he need to die for my sin? I would need forgiveness. I would need the law to be satisfied. But I need somebody in power to push the devil back, to move him away from trying to infiltrate at every turn in the road and do the things that he would do to try to steal and kill and destroy. I want to just show you a couple of places. He robbed the devil. Jesus robbed the devil. Jesus robbed the devil. (laughs) Jesus robbed the devil. 
And the devil hadn't gotten over it yet. In fact, he, he doesn't even want to believe it, though he has to, but he'll try to convince you that he still has all the authority he ever had. That all the power that he ever had over you, he's still got. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Paul writes, he made you alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now, that's important. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. And in the same expression, he says, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. What would that be? The listing of all of our sins. Folks, listen, don't ever, don't ever, don't ever think the devil is this dumb. He is the perfect legalist. He knows the rights that he has, and he knows enough about the legal system of heaven that he will try to manipulate those things to his advantage. But when he understands that he can bring up every accusation that was good 15 years ago for you, to you, he can bring up something 30 years ago, five days ago, prior to the time that you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, and he can bring those things back up like he used to, to cripple you and defeat you and lie to you and shame you. But when you realize what the Word of God says to his people, that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was being nailed to the cross, was taking all of those certificates of debt that we owe sin. As he was nailed to the cross, that document in a spiritual sense was nailed to the cross too. And as that happened, as that happened, Satan's authority, Satan's right to own the sins of your past disappeared, was removed from him having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile toward us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then he says, immediately following that, when he had thereby disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, having triumphed over the principalities and powers of darkness, having triumphed over them through what Jesus did. So what was Jesus doing? He was taking your legal problems on himself, allowing the full weight of the law to be carried out against him. He didn't just suffer. He didn't just swoon. He died. The wages of sin is death. Who was he dying for? Who was he dying in the place of? What was killing him? It was you. It was me. And as he was doing that, he was taking out of the fingers of Satan himself, Hallelujah. Satan's ability 
to accuse. Jesus would say he's the, the accuser of the brethren. He'll still try to accuse. He can tell a lie just like it's the truth, but it's an accusation. And what happens is that when this drops 18 inches, when you realize that, wait a minute, Jesus died for that. I'm guilty. I did it. It was wrong. The wage of sin is death. And I don't understand it. And I don't know totally how he did it. But I'm telling you, Lord, I love you because some way or another, you died in my place for sins that you didn't commit that I did. Let me fast forward you just a second. The Fifth Amendment to our national constitution reads something like this. No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy for life or limb. That's how the founding fathers formulated that. It prohibits anyone from being prosecuted twice for substantially the same crime. It bars a second prosecution after either acquittal or conviction. Now, I'm not saying that the Constitution is divinely inspired by heaven and we just need to add it to the last, right behind Revelation. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the framers of the Constitution and our founding fathers were schooled and trained and knowledgeable of the Word of God from Genesis to the maps. They were. No, no, no debate about that. And it's interesting that when they were coming up with the Bill of Rights, it may very well that they pulled from the truth of what Jesus did on the cross. That we don't want there to be in this double jeopardy business. Or you can be tried again for the same crime. You can be called to give an account for something that you did time for before or that you were acquitted of before, but just because somebody doesn't like you, we're going to bring you up before the law one more time. That is what Satan, your arch enemy, tries to do daylight to dark many times with us. Accuse, accuse, remind, remind. Say, well, you, this is what you really are. This is not who you really are. This is what you really are. And what we need to joyfully be able to do is realize whatever he brings up, whatever he brings up, when you've put your trust in what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you, you, you're not looking to have to add anything to what Jesus did. It's just the cross of Jesus, period, end of story. That's my hope that I have been forgiven. I have been. So when the devil tries the double jeopardy deal, to know that's not coming from God, but to know that's coming from another place. To be able to say, Satan, the blood of Jesus is against you. I humble myself under the hand of the Lord and I'm resisting the devil. And the scripture would say he has to flee because legally he doesn't have a leg to stand on. Now that's one thing to preach it and spit about four rows and 
have you all saying amen? It's another thing for that to work in real time Tuesday at noon, Thursday night, next Saturday. Well, the scripture will talk about our needing by the power of the Spirit for our minds to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, that he'll remind us of who we now are in Christ, of what has been taken care of for us by Christ, and who the devil is not. Well, back to that question. Why could the grave not hold him? Now, I'm going to just have to apologize in advance. I'm liable to get excited. And I, and I, I just, I'm not sure how that may be expressed. But I want you to find Romans chapter 4. Romans, I want every eye in the room, as is possible for you to do it, to find Romans chapter 4. Verse 24. Romans chapter 4. And verse 24, for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions, delivered up for execution. That's one one of the same as saying Jesus was put to death for our transgressions, but then this phrase, (laughs) and was raised because of our justification. Raised on account of. Raised as a result of. Raised on account of our justification. What got Jesus out of the grave was our justification. Now I realize that's a multi-syllable word. We don't use a whole lot in this day and time But I want to tell you what it means. The Bible kind of justification. It means forgiveness because he accomplished what was necessary for us to be forgiven. It means cleansing because enough was done to the shedding of his blood No matter what the moral dirt was, there's enough in the blood of Jesus to wash you as clean as snow, another image. That's how he sees you. But there are three other things that to be justified means. It means to be acquitted. To be acquitted. Guilty as charged, but acquitted of the charges because of what Jesus did in your place. I'm not guilty. 
I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Not because I didn't do anything or because God forgot what I did or suddenly those things didn't seem they're not quite as wrong as they were. No. It's everything that is presented to be. We change the names, but it's still the sin. But Jesus took that sin in his body as he was hung on the tree. And as a result of the full measure of the law being followed, being applied in his life, the result is from his death, I stand before a holy God. His words, not mine, I stand before him not guilty. Not guilty. Here's the second one. That would be plenty. <laughs> Wouldn't it? I mean, when that, when that drops in on your soul and you've lived a lot of the years of your life with guilt and shame over you, and then you realize the truth of this, you, you talk about freedom and want to just scale church pews in a single bound, you know, pull on Superman's. You, it's freedom like you never knew because you're not carrying that. But what about this? So complete. So marvelous was the work of Jesus. That to be justified in the Bible sense means not only to be forgiven and cleansed and to be not guilty, but it means that your record has been expunged. It is as if all of the line item things, the phone book thickness, because of what Jesus did and, and because I'm receiving by faith what he did, before God, my record is clear. My record has been expunged. Third, as if that wasn't enough, something that the Apostle Paul speaks of as imputed righteousness, which means that on the basis of what Jesus did, not only are we forgiven, cleansed, not guilty, record expunged. But the heart of God is to see you as he sees Jesus. So that Jesus was able to legally now, because the demands of the law, sin and death been satisfied, he has chosen to bequeath to you to place in your account his very own righteousness. Now you, you, you got to spend about four days on each one of those points, especially that last one. So complete, so thorough, so everlasting was the benefit of the death of Jesus Christ in my place and your place that he has made it possible for me to be clothed in his robes of righteousness. That when the Father sees me, 
He sees me in the light of the one who has dressed me in a new suit of clothes. The record's clear. I'm not guilty. I've been forgiven. And I've been washed clean. It was on the basis of our justification that Jesus was raised. What caused death to lose its grip? What caused the grave to happen to open up? Happen to open up? Have to open up? It was because Jesus had accomplished everything necessary for our justification. Alamo City, just say a minute, we'll let you go. Alamo City is a place. Now, don't be looking around. It's a place where on the same pew, there'll be some folks who have been through just about anything and everything that it's possible to go through as a 21st century American in San Antonio, Texas, and the sorrows, the sadnesses, the guilt trips, the shames, all of the from, from our past on the same row. And then down a little bit further, there may be somebody who, who has not had any kind of background like that. And the natural thing would be as well, the, these folks who've been through it, they're just never really going to be accepted by these folks over here. And these folks over here will never know how to relate to these folks over here. That is, unless you realize, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That all our righteousness is as filthy rags. Every one of us needs Jesus. When the common denominator is not a denomination or an ethnicity or a culture or a bank statement or a college degree, an alma mater, when the common denominator is the wonderful person of Jesus, just Jesus, just Jesus, then ones from every different kind of background can find a common bond in Christ, in Christ. So we'll have folks come through here and say, well, you know, Pastor, you didn't have that, and you don't have that, and you got potholes in your driveway, and you got blah, blah, blah. You know, and I, I just, I just know, I just, well, we, we just thank you for being with us today, and we probably will never see you again this side of heaven. I mean, I don't say that to them, but that's kind of like, because the issue is stuff. But when you've exhausted all that stuff can get you, and you're still coming up short, and you find that there's no disappointment in Jesus. He's all that he promised to be. Then it won't matter. It won't matter if you got a roof over your head. It won't matter if there are sounds, lights, internet. It, just get me in his presence. Just, Lord, just let me find a place where I can sense a place where it's known that you're a friend of sinners like me. You're a friend of sinners like me. Amen. That was for free didn't cost you anything. 
Lord, we're just so blessed, so thankful, so humbled beyond words that you would love us like you have loved us. Would you please open our hearts up to a fuller measure of what that means? But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Lord, thank you for those words. According to your mercy, we're saved. According to your mercy, we're forgiven. According to your mercy, we have hope. Take us from this place, Lord, with a fresh filling, with a fresh understanding of what you have done for us in your death that would accomplish our justification, our freedom our destiny, in Jesus' name, amen.